0: All right, friends, we are into the new year, and we are in a short sermon series uh, between now and Lent on the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is super fun, and it's super fun studying it as an adult, because this is one of the ones that you pull out for kids because the stories are really, really good. Um, They're not exactly child appropriate, which is why I don't know why we pull them out for kids. it's like the most popular kid stories are Noah's Ark where God drowns everyone, <laughs> Daniel in the Lion's Den where even though Daniel doesn't get eaten by the lions, other people do, so that's kind of terrifying and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where people are getting consumed in a fiery furnace. And for some reason, we think those are like the kids' stories. Uh, that's what everyone learns in, in Vacation Bible School and Sunday School coming up. And it's because they're very engaging stories. They're great stories. But I'll tell you what, studying Daniel, like studying Noah's Ark, as an adult, as a grown-up, with grown-up theology, asking what this has to say to us as fully mature followers of Jesus Christ gives a whole new nuance to it. So we're going to start, we're, um, I don't remember, it's six or seven weeks, something like that in Daniel, and we're going to walk through the book. Um, and to start off with, well, you have to get the context, that this is one of the books that is set in the exile. Now, if you look in any kind of Bible commentaries, or um, if you take a Bible studies class, you'll hear a whole lot of talk about this being set during, uh, or this being written during the Maccabean Revolt, which happened much, much later, um, in the time, in the, what we call the intertestamental period. And that's because there is some textual evidence that, that um, suggests that this might have been written at a later time period, but it is set at the time period of the exile. And so for Sunday mornings, we're going to talk about this set in the exile, because that is the story that is being told, and that is the story that came to us in the Bible, And the exile was the time at the end of Israel's time in the promised land when they were kicked out of the promised land because of breaking the covenant. So brief recap, God made a covenant with Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob um, was then, then became the 12 tribes, The 12 sons then became the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes grew very large in Egypt. God rescued them from Egypt, made a covenant with them. That then became the nation of Israel. Part of the covenant was that God gave the nation of Israel the promised land. And God said, I will give you this land and I will protect you and keep you. And in return, you're going to follow this law. And God gave them a whole law called the Mosaic Law. And it started with the Ten Commandments and went on from there. And they were to follow that law, to set them apart from the rest of the world, and also as they are part of the covenant, right? So I will be your God, you will be my people. Well, the Israelites are bad at things, like keeping covenants. And so they didn't do it very well. And so most of the chunk of the history portion of the Old Testament is the story of how Israel didn't do it very well. And the prophets, um, one, one of these days we'll get into the major prophets of the Old Testament, is the story of the preachers telling them how they didn't do it very well. And so we have the record of sermons over and over and over again preaching to people about how they are breaking the covenant, how they are breaking God's law, how they are Um, living not the way God has given them to live, and how if they do not change, there are going to be consequences. There are going to be consequences. And so at the very end of that period, there was a consequence. And the consequence was God allowed... What, be, what were the two kingdoms within the promised land, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, God allowed them to be conquered. So the northern kingdom was conquered first. The southern kingdom was conquered second. The northern kingdom was conquered by Syria. The southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. Now, because of the southern kingdom had Jerusalem, had um the kind of centerpiece of the culture of Israel. Most of the stories that we have are based out of the culture of the southern kingdom. And so the exile, when the Bible talks about it, typically refers to that ba- that second exile, that Babylonian exile. And it came in a couple different waves. Um, the first wave was when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and just took Some of the, uh, basically conquered it without a fight, and he took um, some of the nobility back to Babylon with him. And then there were other waves, and at at some point, Jerusalem became completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Um, Everything that the Israelites had called their culture, their history, their centerpiece of living, all of it was wiped out. So it was a dramatic and traumatic experience for the people of God the likes of which you and I probably can't imagine because we have not experienced anything remotely like it in our cultural history. Um, there There is nothing that we can imagine that compares to the entire nation being taken into exile in another land, most of them being killed, the remainder being taken into exile, and then waiting there for a period of 70 years, and then eventually coming Back and starting from scratch to try to rebuild this this country that was once theirs. So the period of exile is the period that is, I would say, most poignant in Israel's history. It is burned into their cultural memory. So if you know how you remember bad experiences more than you remember good experiences. <laughs> Like the experience you have of burning your hand is stronger than all of the 20 times that you cooked and didn't burn your hand. Um, The experiences that are strongest and most powerful for Israel are the slavery in Egypt and the exile. The most painful experiences of their history. And those are the ones that pervade the Old Testament. So you hear these strains of slavery in Egypt going throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And exile also. You hear the strains of exile going throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Daniel is set during the first wave. Well, it actually goes across a long period of time, but the very beginning is at the first wave of the Babylonian exile. And so this is where we're starting with Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah was a southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So remember when I said this was the consequence of them not keeping the covenant, was the, the scriptures actually say it wasn't that they fought, fought and lost. It was that the Lord delivered them, right? <laughs> the Lord did this. The Lord brought Babylon as a consequence for their not keeping the covenant. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. So the king has taken the treasures of Judah, the treasures of the temple, to Babylon. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Okay, so what's happening here is Nebuchadnezzar the king is taking some sons of the nobility, some sons of royal blood, and he's taking them to Babylon, and they're going to become members of the court. And so he goes through and he hand-selects people that are good-looking, people that are smart, people that are of noble blood, people that are of wealthy families, certain young men. They're taking them to Babylon. And they're going to be trained not only as translators, as people who can help um, work between the two kingdoms, but let's be frank, they're also hostages, right? So this is what you did in the ancient world, is the first step is you would take hostages from the nobility of whichever culture you were um, You are conquering. And so that is what uh, our main characters are. Our main characters are these young men who were taken in this first wave of exile to the court of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And they are going to be treated very well, um, (laughs) assuming the people back home don't revolt. Um, They're going to be treated very well. They're going to be educated and they're going to learn the Babylonian language so that they can serve as translators and they can be of usefulness to the king um, whenever he needs them. Okay, so the next line is where this gets interesting. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Now, we don't know how many were chosen, but these are the ones that are named. These are our main characters. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names um, because... They, um, those names sounded really weird to the Babylonians. So they wanted to give them Babylonian names so that they could, um, they could fit in. So now they have two names, right? So they are in the Babylonian court and they are, have two names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. Um, so this is the scene. These four young men And they're young. Uh, We don't know how old they are, but if it says youth, let's guess 10 to 14, something like that. So kids. We would say kids. They would say that was, you know, the very beginning of manhood. Um, They are taken from their family. They are taken to the most, at that time, the most powerful kingdom in the world. They are... um, promised that they're going to serve if they do well in the court of the king. They're going to be dressed well, they're going to be fed well, they're going to be taught well. Uh, They are given new names, they're given new names, and they are assigned everything that they're going to do. Now, I want you to imagine yourself as a 12-year-old. Do you remember yourself as a 12-year-old? Me as a 12-year-old, it was a terrible time of life, because I kept wanting to fit in and I never did. Do you remember that feeling, wanting to be a kid and wanting to be like everyone else? And of course, you never were. I mean, maybe some of you guys were. But one of the things I've learned is that even the ones who did fit in didn't feel like they fit in because being a kid, you're just kind of in that phase. Well, imagine that compounded to, not only are you trying to fit in with the cool kids in the middle school, you are in the court of the most powerful kingdom in the world, surrounded by money and wealth beyond measure, and you are being offered a future that you could never have dreamt of if you do everything that they tell you to. And here's where it gets interesting in verse 8. Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, so what is that what does that mean? These are, they're not being poorly treated. They're being fed very, very well. They're being fed from the king's table. But the king doesn't exactly care about kosher laws, does he? Part of the covenant, part of the keeping of the covenant, the reason the Israelites got kicked out of Israel, the promised land, were extensive dietary laws that we today would refer to as the kosher laws, right? There were specific rules about how the people of God were to eat and to not eat, how they were to dress and to not dress, all kinds of things, but what they were to do. And this very, very strong um, backbone was what they were to eat and to not eat. And so here are these young men in the court of the king of the most powerful country on the face of the earth, being fed very, very well, being treated very, very well. And Daniel resolves not to defile himself by eating the food that is placed in front of him. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second. Because part of what's being set up for us, and part of the reason that this book has become not only popular, but useful to Christians and people of faith throughout the ages, is because what's being set up for us is a paradigm, is a story that is applicable to the time it was written, but is applicable to every time since then of what it is like to live in a culture or to live in a place that is functionally enemy territory. Because that is what's happening to Daniel here. Daniel and his friends are living in enemy territory. And the enemy is treating them very, very well (laughs) and offering them all kinds of nice things. And in a very innocuous way is inviting them to break the covenant with God. And Daniel says no. Daniel says no. So the paradigm that's being presented here is that what if people of faith throughout the ages were actually in a similar situation? What if people of the faith throughout the ages were actually also living in enemy territory What if it wasn't just Babylon who was the enemy? What if it wasn't just the Babylonian court that was offering very, very nice things? What if it wasn't just the Babylonian king that was offering an innocuous way to break the covenant and to make the people of God functionally exactly like the people of Babylon, new names and all? Is Daniel going to fully become Belteshazzar, or is he still going to be Daniel in his heart And soul. So, the reason I think this is so important is because it kind of goes back to the the sermon last week was on covenant, on what it means to make a covenant with God and what it means to keep a covenant with God. And when we think of covenants, we think of big decisions and big moments, right? We think of covenants, we think of big decisions and big moments. But you know when covenants are kept? In the small things, right? Covenants are kept in the little, tiny, daily decisions. That's when covenants are, are made or are broken. It's funny. I saw a, a woman doing a comedy sketch on, you. I think it was on Instagram or something, and she was like, you know, whenever anyone's in love with you, don't believe them when they say they'll do anything for you, because what they mean is that they're going to slay a dragon for you. He doesn't mean he's going to do the laundry, right? He's like, <laughs> and then she goes on and she's like, where's the dragon? Show me the dragon. You're going to kill a dragon, but you're not going to clean the dishes. Um, And in the point of going on and on is that when we make covenants, we're imagining the big things. I'm going to stay faithful in the big things. I'm going to stay faithful in all of these grand. I'm going to kill a dragon for you. I'm going to go to the cross for Jesus. I'm going to uh, refuse to worship idols. I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice for God. And what Daniel is setting up here is that there are really big things in the Christian covenant, but you know what? If we don't start with the small things, we are never, ever, ever going to even get to the big ones. If we don't start with the small things, we're never going to get to the big ones. In marriage, if we are not faithful in the small parts of the covenant, we will not be faithful in the big part of the covenant, right? In faith, if we are not faithful in the small parts of the covenant, we will not be faithful in the big parts of the covenant. And what's being set up for us is a story of a 12-year-old who, in the face of the greatest authority and power on earth, said, I am going to be faithful in the small parts of the covenant. i be mean, faithful in the small parts of the covenant. Anyone remember the movie Chariots of Fire? No? No one else? Okay, good. Um, it's a great movie. It's a classic. And it reminds us of another era when Christians cared deeply about some um, of the ritualistic parts of Christianity that we care less about today. So one of the main characters, represent, uh, portraying Eric Liddell, he was a runner, made the Olympics, deeply committed Christian, found out that his race in the Olympics was on a Sunday and refused to run because it would have conflicted too much with his faith to run a race on Sundays. Friends, could you even imagine that happening today? Right? So I hear that And because I'm from a different era where we do all kinds of things on Sunday and we've decided that keeping the Sabbath is a little bit more symbolic and it doesn't necessarily mean exactly Sunday and maybe I can keep a Sabbath another time and I don't have to do it on Sunday. When I hear that, that sounds a little bit crazy, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, if you were offered a job that paid you well but did not allow you any time to go to church at all, would you take it? Right? It's the same question. It's a little thing. It's a little thing. In the grand scheme of things, missing church on a Sunday is a whole lot less important than, let's say, like, worshiping Satan. Right? So if we're going to choose between these two, missing church on a Sunday, killing someone. Right? Missing church on a Sunday, embezzling from your company. Right? There's a whole lot bigger things in the world. And yet what is being set up for us is a paradigm that says... Faithfulness in the big things begins with faithfulness in the small things. Faithfulness in the big things begins with faithfulness in the small things. And I'm not up here trying to reinstate a rule about Sundays, but what I am saying is that your covenant with God includes big things and includes small things. And friends, it is very, very easy for us to write off the small things as though they do not matter. But if we write off the small things, we will never even get to be in the story when the big things come around. Because you know what would have happened to Daniel now if he had just done it, is he would have become Babylonian. If he had just done it, he would have become Babylonian. And then the rest of the book wouldn't have existed. The lions didn't, never would have happened, right? The fiery furnace never would have happened. None of the great Acts of faith that occur in Daniel later would have even occurred if he hadn't been faithful in the small things. I want you to think about what the small things in your life are, because they're the ones that are going to, the enemy's going to come first, and it's going to look very innocuous. But they're the ones that the pressure to compromise is going to come. The enemy is smart. He doesn't come first off and say, hey, You want to bow down to Satan, right? That's not like the first invitation. He comes against something that doesn't matter. He comes against something small. And coming against something small, if he can get you to do that, then he can get you to do anything. Right? And so that's why the small things matter. The parts of the covenant that we talk about. The going to church, the reading the Bible, the giving part of your time, talents, gifts, income, all of that matters is because living in enemy territory means that being a part of the people of God means being faithful in the small parts of the covenant. So what happens when Daniel does that? So Daniel goes and tells the overseer um, about his decision. He doesn't want, and he's very polite about it, right? He's not trying to get himself killed. This is a master class in how to live well, keeping your convictions, and yet not trying to just make people mad at you. And so he goes to his overseer and he says, "Um, I would really like to eat other food. And the overseer says, look, this is the food that's assigned to you. It's the best in the kingdom. And if you start to look scrawny, it's going to be my head because I'm supposed to take care of you. And so, so Daniel says, okay, okay, let's do a test. You give me the food I want for 10 days and we'll see how I look." And so they did it. And Daniel ate vegetables and water, which was the safe thing he could eat, the safe thing he could eat, vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of it, he looked wonderful. He looked healthy, he looked strong. And his overseer said, okay, you can eat that as long as you want. And because of that, God blessed him. And what does it say? Because of that, God gave him, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, found them none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, Azariah. So they entered into the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanter of his whole kingdom. So God gives them wisdom. God gives them power. God gives them position. God gives them exactly what everyone was wanting because they were faithful in the small things friends this is where it starts i know a whole lot of people who want the end of that chapter but don't want the beginning of it jesus says you are the salt of the earth but salt that is lost its saltiness is useful only to be thrown out and trampled under the ground you are the light of the world but if light goes out no one No one lights a light and puts it under a bushel basket. Friends, you are called to great and glorious things. You are called to be people that stand for glory and for grace and for goodness. You are called to be people that bear the goodness of God into the world. You are called to be beacons of light in a land of darkness. You are called to be beacons of God in enemy territory. And you're never even getting to get the chance unless you start being faithful in the small things. You're never even going to get the chance if you don't start being faithful in the small things. And so this week, this week, before we get to the rest of the book, before we get to the lion's den and the exciting things and the fiery furnace, think about what those small things are in your life. Think about the way that you have been invited, seduced into compromising on the small things Because I promise you that is what is hindering God using you in bigger things. Think about the way that you have been spoken to by the enemy because he is cunning and he is smart. Think about the way that you are compromising and commit to stay faithful because once you do, then you start to enter the rest of the book. Once you do, you start to receive the blessing that God promises and God gives to his servants in exile. Once you do, you start to leave your identity as a Babylonian and step into your identity as a child of God. And that's not only where the rest of the book happens, that's where the real fun begins. And that's where we're going to go starting next week. So would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, giver of all good things, you who have invited us into a greater story than we even know, you who have promised us a greater glory than we even know. You have great things in store for us. Forgive us, forgive us, we pray. Because we have been, we have been so careless, God. We have been so careless. And there are so many ways that you have called us to stay faithful to you and we have just not even noticed. And so Lord, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us, we pray. Bring to our mind where we need to stay faithful to you today. Bring to our mind where we need to stay faithful and keep our covenant with you this week. And empower us to do it. That living in faithfulness by grace, we might shine with your glory in a dark world. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught.